Well, we're here to study today how to align our lives with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the Word of God specifically. And so we have already studied in our alignment series about what it means to have a heart that's aligned with God, to love the Lord God with all of your heart. We've talked about what it means to love the Lord with all of your soul. And tonight or today we're going to talk about loving the Lord with all of our mind. In the book of Mark, chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus said this as he quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. But when, when, when he was asked regarding the law, this was his response, summarizing the entire Old Testament this way. That you shall love the Lord God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And this is what we're describing in alignment, <clears throat> that it's all commitment of us. Not 90%, not even 99%. We don't want to be off by a single degree, which we've already seen and talked about the ramifications of one degree off of traje trajectory can turn to catastrophe. We want our hearts completely aligned with the Lord. Well, how do you even accomplish that? A, a heart that is aligned with the Lord is a heart of belief, of trust, of courage in the Lord Himself. It is a heart that is rooted and grounded in the love of God. When God's love is seated in our soul and in our heart specific, then we begin to comprehend what is the incomprehensible, and that means the, the breadth and length and depth and height of the love of God. And that love that is in us, because God is love, that love that is in us then reflects back in our love for the Lord Himself, our love for people, because God loves people. To love God with all, of our whole, uh, with all of our heart means that we are rooted and grounded in the love of God. To love God with all of your soul, this is talking about our will, our emotions, our character, our values as they're expressed, our personalities. This is the part we saw when God took Adam and He formed him out of the dust of the ground and breathed life into him and made him a living soul. And Adam became a person a real person, and not just because he had blood flowing through his veins and a heart pumping in his chest, but because of the, the very persona now of who he is as an individual. He, his expression of love back to the Lord because he, he worshipped God and he had fellowship with God. He knew God. But we see the soul that is completely given unto the Lord that is aligned with the Lord is surrendered to the will of God. Because as people, we obviously desire our own things. And our own way is sometimes contrary to the way of God. So the, the soul aligned is aligned to the surrendered, or is surrendered to the will of God. But what about our minds? So much is talked about in this day and age and when it comes into the areas of self-care and how we, how we think and what we're inundated within our script in our culture every single day with so much information there's a lot of studies written about this because of the volume of information that we take in on a day-to-day -day basis compared to in previous times in history when you look at a normal village back in in times of history would have had maybe 150 people in it and you would be privy to the information of your village and those families in that village and that would be about the capacity of your newsworthiness 
Occasionally you would get news from afar, but it didn't really directly impact your life unless you were related, but it was always just news from somewhere. But that's certainly not the case today. Because of all the social media, because of the media in general and the access that we have, we know what's going on in all different nations of the world, what's happening in everybody's family, what everybody's eating for lunch, and how they exercised yesterday. We know it all. We've got it. Well, how do we deal with all these thoughts, imaginations, our understanding? Well, a mind that is aligned with the Lord is established in the Word of God. So hear it again. When our heart is, and our, our love is grounded in the love of God, our will is surrendered to the Lord, and then our mind is established in the Word. This is what the Lord is describing here with loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to do a case study today. I think it's the easiest to go into Scripture, and I like to look at somebody who had an incredible zeal for God. Love God, faithful, passionate, and ministry, but he got a degree off kilter. When he got one degree off kilter, it really impacted his mind and what was next. This study is about a man named Elijah who's a prophet. And Elijah the prophet had incredible victories as a prophet. He'd been trained in the school of the prophets. He was a prophet to the nation of Israel who was sliding away from the Lord in a bad way because they had given themselves over to idolatry and worship of idols, giving them their children over to this as well, and it was a very dark time. False prophets had rose up and began to say things that were completely contradictory to the things of God. But Elijah was a a passionate man for God. He loved the Lord. He believed what he had heard, what he had seen. He believed God. In fact, he had even prayed to God that for, to reveal God's power and might, he asked God to shut off the rain for three years. And God answered his request. For three years there was no rain. It created an incredible famine and dependence now. And people began, instead of crying out to the Lord, they cried out to their false gods, the God of the sun and the moon and the rain and the earth and the animals and anyone that could possibly out there hear this prayer, please answer it because the famine in the land. And so Elijah prayed for God to turn the rain back on and God turned it back on again. Surely that would lead to a revival to see the power of the living God and a man who prays to the true and living God, surely that would turn everybody to God. Nope. Elijah gathered all the false prophets together. And as he gathered all the false prophets, and they began to cry out, and he kind of set them to a, a duel in prophet world. And that is, you cry out to your gods and see which one of them will come down and consume this offering with fire. And none of them did. They all start crying out to their, their false gods. They're cutting themselves. They're crying. And Elijah's not trying to just be a smart aleck here, but he's like, hey, maybe your God is asleep, or maybe he's too tired, or maybe he's on vacation, or maybe he's deaf, but maybe you need to yell louder. I don't know. Do something. Nothing happens because these are statue gods that have all been fabricated, and people attribute power to whatever they want to have power. Well, these gods did nothing for them. Elijah prays, and God rains down fire out of heaven and consumes the offering. 
And it was very clear now, who is the true and living God? Once again, it's the prophet Elijah's God. Surely this would turn everyone from idolatry and sin back to the living God. But it didn't. In fact, this infuriated the king, Ahab, and his wife, who his name is Jezebel. And she put a sentence of death on his head. And she made this statement that she said, that man needs to be hunt, hunted down, and he needs to become just like all the other prophets that have been slain. I want him dead. And this is where we pick up the story because this is not exactly the way Elijah thought this was going to go. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4, it says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that night or that he might die. And he said, It's enough now, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now watch what's happened here. He has taken off and run as far as he can get away from the circumstance. But he makes this statement, crying out to the Lord, it's enough. I'm done. I have fulfilled my calling. I am done. But he doesn't just say that in a manner that I've checked all the boxes, but he makes another statement, and that is, take my life. Lord, I... I want you to rid me now, for I am no better than my father's. But here's the question. Well, whoever asked him to be better than his father's? It gives you a glimpse into the heart of Elijah. That Elijah believed that somehow he was the one that needed to turn the people back from false gods to the living God. But that didn't happen, at least from his perspective. Elijah was struggling here in his mind with unmet expectations. He expected a revival to take place. He was expecting everyone to turn back to God. But that didn't happen. Have you ever struggled through this with unmet expectations? You thought somebody was going to do something. You thought for sure they would say something. You expected this response. It didn't happen. It sets your mind into a motion then of all of a sudden we start imagining all the reasons why that did not happen or they didn't say or they did say what they said. And we don't really know. This is where sometimes we get into judging people's motives of why they might have done what they did when we really don't even still know that. It's an unmet expectation. Elijah's struggling here, believing that his perceived or his ministry has failed. Do you ever feel like a failure as a parent? Well, you did all the right things. I hear the stories all the time. I understand. We raise our kids in church. We invested in all their activities. We took them to every possible thing. I mean, we can check all the boxes. I mean, I, I don't know what else I could have modeled any different, but the result didn't turn out like I expected. And as a result, we feel like failures. Maybe it's in the moments of a day at a time where you feel like a failure because, well, I already trained that. How come the thing I trained when they were three has come back now at age seven? And you begin to wonder, what, did I blow it? No, it's, it's called training. And it's a training until they launch, but it's a perpetual training and requires a lot of perseverance and persistence. You ever failed as a Christian? Well, of course, we all have. We've come short we say things, we, man, a Christ follower doesn't say that. 
We do things that, man, that's certainly not of God. And we've all been there. And then what happens is if we allow that and we don't reconcile that with the Lord and restore fellowship with God in that, we'll start running those things in our mind and start to disqualify ourselves from every possible thing because after all, I'm not good enough. Elijah's here. He seemingly feels he has failed in ministry. We struggle through ministry measuring by ministry outputs. If I do this, this will be the result. Well, certainly throughout Scripture, we can see consequences, blessing and consequences that come with behaviors. No question. But we often will run these things down to where if you do these things, this will become the result for you. But that's not always so, is it? Because you're dealing with human beings who also make their own choices and and choose the way they want to live. And they have sinful, lustful appetites just like you do. And so you can't control people's behaviors. So how do you measure the outputs? Then we end up in these places of misperceptions, of seeing things the way we want to see them, but it may be completely inaccurate. So we start filling in the blanks. I heard it said one time, it was really helpful that, you know, all the rhymes, if you ever try to read rhymes, they make no sense without the last word in the sentence. And where we struggle is the rhyme of life doesn't make any sense sometimes, so we start filling in the blanks the way we want them. See, those are built out of misperceptions and our minds begin to run And so we have to step back from this scenario as we're watching Elijah's scene unfold. Does he really know what's going on with everybody, everyone's heart, everyone's motive, what all's happening all over the kingdom? No. But this is the way he sees it. And so as a result of his perception, he runs away, hides under a tree and says, Lord, I'm done. Take me home now. I'm finished. Because of these imaginations and the way our minds tend to run, we are instructed in the New Testament of Scripture about how to deal with our mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now notice where these strongholds are located. We're not talking about buildings and walls and all that. No, we're talking about strongholds of the mind. Casting down arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Well, if these weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that means they're spiritual. They're mighty in God through the Word of God, the power of the Word of God, to bring down these strongholds so that... What is this describing? I learned to think biblically. Life happens day in, moment by moment by moment. And how do I think biblically in this moment? That's what we're describing here. And when I don't think biblically, I'm not bringing those thoughts into the obedience of Christ. I'm letting that stuff run into a worldly way that satisfies the lust of the flesh, eyes or pride of life. And then I begin to worry and and get all anxious over things. And that's why Paul gave an incredible instruction in the book of Philippians regarding our minds. And he said, finally, brethren, in Philippians 4, 8, whatever things are true and whatever things are noble, whatever things are just and whatever things are pure and whatever things are lovely and whatever things are of a good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. That's where the mind needs to land is on those things. The first one is so helpful. The rest of them flow right in underneath that. But whatsoever is true... Now, this is a 
a very helpful guide. Because if I focus on what is actually true, what do I know to be true? Not what I perceive to be true, what I think is true, or what someone else has even told me is true. I know it is true. You know, that eliminates a lot off the list, quite frankly. There are a lot of things of information I take in on a daily basis, just like all of you, that until I run it down, I don't really know for sure if it's true. I'm not an eyewitness to it. I wasn't the first person to hear it. I don't know. So I can't say for sure if it's true. And so what happens whenever we are in the untrue or in the we think it's true mode, this is how we end up in the what ifs. Well, what if? This is the hypotheticals of looking at the future. Now, is that actually true? Well, you can, we're, we're wise people. I mean, you can see that, well, if you do this, this is the kind of the, the normal flow of, of things. But we still don't know that to be true. So we live in hypotheticals. And what happens with hypotheticals? Because it creates this um, crippling fear. Because it's this huge what if. And we can let our minds wonder in imaginations of all the what ifs. I'm sure we have all done this at some point. One of the great helps is if you can in that moment just call time out and start asking the question or have someone else in, in an accountable circle with you. Amy and I do this all the time. Stop, call time out here. What do we know to actually be true? Not what do we think or what do we perceive or where we view the trajectory of this as going. What do I know in this moment is true? And based on that truth... I have a biblical response in this moment to that truth. But where we get in trouble is when we got into the hypotheticals, the what ifs, because now all of a sudden we end up in this crippling fear regarding, it could be over disasters, conflicts, finances, raising our kids, aging, suffering, death, dying, you name it. They become crippling fears because these are all blanks at the end of the sentence. We don't know how they fill in, so we fill them in ourselves so the rhyme makes sense to me. But they may not be the rhyme God was writing. Something else that we watch for and when is whatsoever is true, not only is the what ifs, which are future hypotheticals, but what about the if onlys? Well, if only I would have done this. If only that wouldn't have happened. If only, if only, if only. Now we're dealing in the past. So what's our tendency? Well, our tendency is to fail to acknowledge God's role in your past. And we disregard that God was at work in my past as much as He is in the present and He will be in my future. So it's as if God was absent in my past. Or, I don't like my past, I don't like how it sounds, I don't like how it has impacted my present, so I want to rewrite my past and start creating this narrative of a different past. So it sounds better to me, and I can now reconcile that and feel better in it. It doesn't deal with reality of the past. The if only becomes very destructive. I've watched this happen through many who have tried to deconstruct their faith. In this deconstructive process, is taking either an event of the past or an entire overview of the past and saying, well now, I don't believe any of that anymore. 
It's not running it, and it's deconstructing without any construction. And the new constructing, if, you're, if there is any, will not be founded in anything in Scripture. It will be world ways. This is how it makes me feel, and I don't like how that made me feel, so this is how I want to feel now. The problem is that my feelings keep changing, so I'm in this never-ending cycle of deconstructing my, my reality. And I can't find what is true. Elijah has strayed off course by seemingly only a degree. God fed him in that wilderness spot. God nurtured him. God led him then, and he t- Elijah took off running and went to a cave, and then hiding out in this cave, God brought him out to the mouth of the cave and put on quite a demonstration. Earthquakes, fire, wind, the whole smash, and God, God was not in any of those. Instead, God spoke to him through a very small, still voice. God demonstrated his incredible power over all creation, but then he just talked to Elijah as a friend. In 1 Kings 19, 9, it says, And there went, he went into a cave and spent the night in, the, in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, Well, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. Well, if you look back on what he's just said, many statements that are true. I'm zealous for the Lord. There will be no question of the truth of the zeal Elijah had for God. True. True statement. Many have sinned. They have turned over, they've raised up altars, they've torn down the things that are holy. True. The prophets have been killed. True. They seek my life. Yeah. Uh, Jezebel's put a sentence of death on his head, so that is true. But then there was this one degree off. I alone am left. I'm it. I'm the only one of Israel now, Lord, that hasn't bowed their knee to you or bowed their knee to the false gods. Well, can he give testament of every person? He knows the story of everybody? No. It's a perception. Why? Because after all of the miraculous things, the prayers, the fire from heaven, these false prophets have been eliminated. After all of that, surely we would end up with this incredible revival and the king would be turned to God and and everyone would bow their knee to the true and living God, not the circumstance that we're in right now. But his perception was off by one click. God spoke to him gently. God gave him a charge. And in this charge is bundled quite a, quite a story because he told him, he said, I want you to go anoint a new king. Ooh, you know what that means? The old king is out of business. This one you have feared, well, he's done. Because what Elijah didn't know is God was doing a work in the background. Elijah didn't know that. I also want you to anoint a new prophet that will minister in your stead because God has a a new guy he's raising up. Elisha is going to minister in your stead. But then God let him know. He said, Elijah, there's one more thing. 1 Kings 19, 18. 
Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Oh, I thought I alone was the only one left. No, there were 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee yet to him either. See, he was, he was so right on most of his information. One click off, one degree off. And look where it sent him. It sent him running. It sent him to sit under a tree and asking God just to be done with him and take him on. He saw himself as a failure. I'm no better than my father's. I didn't accomplish what I thought I was supposed to accomplish. And all of that ran through his mind, and we get to see it recorded in Scripture. Why? One click off of perceptions that were not real. Well, often, we don't always know what God's doing. Good grief, there's no way to know all of that. But there's plenty of times where we do know things. The, the news from the doctor is real. My body has got a problem. Okay, that's real. Well, now what? Information to you about a loved one. That is real. You lost your job. That's real. I get it. These are truth statements that are very real. What do I know to do whenever things seemingly come apart? When I know it's true. This is helpful. I will do this quickly. But just get this. God's thoughts towards me are good, even if others aren't. Now, you're going to have to hear this fast. God's thoughts towards me are good, even if others aren't. Psalm 139 teaches this. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. God has plans and purposes for me, even if I don't feel adequate. Why? Because God's called me, 2 Timothy 1.9. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before time began. I know that God loves me and accepts me, and I can't be separated from His love. It's not possible. Romans 8 confirms this. I am persuaded. Notice the thoughts here. This is in the mind. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities or powers or things present or things to come nor height nor depth or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know that God is working His work in me. Being confident, there's another thought process, confident in this very thing that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I know that nothing happens that God doesn't already know. Nothing's taking God by surprise. Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my uprising. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. I know that nothing happens by mistake. Why? Because Hebrews 12 says that God is, Jesus is the author and finisher of my faith. So nothing happens by mistake. I know that nothing can happen to me that God's grace can't handle. 2 Corinthians 12, he said to me when Paul was pleading with God for relief from whatever his affliction was, and here's what he said, my grace is sufficient for you. 
My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. Therefore, watch the mind. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distress, all those things that impact our thinking. Why? For Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong because he learns to embrace the grace of God. Nothing happens that God can't use for his own purpose. Romans 8 confirms this, that we know, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And I also nothing can know that nothing can separate me from the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 13 says that for he himself said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So we may boldly say this, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man can do to me. And 2 Corinthians 5 even lets me know that if, if when it's all said and done, my body fails, we are confident. Check out the state of mind. We are confident, yes, and pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So am I ever absent from the presence of God? No. So these are all affirmation statements throughout all Scripture, and I left off about 50 extra because I knew we'd be jammed on time. There are so many that affirm God's promises and His ways to us that impacts our thinking. But if you look, it takes so little to knock us off course. So how in the world can I stay on course to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? How do I learn to think biblically? How do I learn to be established in His Word that I would know what is true when it comes to God Himself. That I would know what is true when it comes to God's thoughts and His actions towards me. That I would know what is true when it comes to my circumstances and how to respond. How do I know? It's the importance here of investment in the Scriptures. It's why I love the fact that in our church, there's several things about our church I love dearly. One is... What we've done here today is so important. I love the fact that we have teachers that teach children from the time they're tiny the truth of God's Word. Why does that matter? To learn to think on what is true. I love biblical discipleship where people mentor another Somebody who's been walking in the faith for a while mentors someone else that's maybe newer to the faith or isn't established in the Word. Why? Because is it just so you can mark all the boxes that now you've got your fundamentals of the faith straight? No. So you learn to think biblically in all circumstances. You learn the character of God, the consistency of God. We learn God's thoughts, His ways, and we also learn how to interact with God in our discipleship. It's, it's why Bible studies matter so much. They're not just to get Christians together for the sake of getting together. No, it's to instruct in Scripture so that we learn what does the Word say and how do I interact with the Creator of heaven and earth and how do I flesh this out so that my thinking is right. Why? To love God with all of my mind. Because the world is constantly bombarding my thinking to cause me to think different and con contrary to what is true.
I love the fact that in our church today, there are so many family members that have come to support your family. The ones that have made commitments, moms and dads that are making commitments to train up their children, and now they've been supported by other family members that are joining in on that same effort. I love that. I have to ask every one of us, though, a hard question today, and that is this. Is is the Lord Jesus Christ seated on the throne of your heart, for starters? To love the Lord God with all of your heart without Jesus being there, well, that's not going to come to pass. To love the Lord God with all of your soul is surrendering to the will of God, recognizing Jesus Christ is the Lord, and there is none other. Embracing the love that God has for you because He gave His life for you to pay your sin debt on the cross when Jesus gave His life, but then rose again. To love God with all of your heart as Jesus seated on the heart. He empowers you to love in a way that you cannot any other way. To love God with all of your soul. Lord, take my life. It belongs to you. You use it as you see fit. It's surrendering yourself to the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. To love God with all of your mind. It is to embrace that which is true. It is why it's so critical when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Without loving God with all of your mind is disconnected from relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my question to you today is, are you a Christ follower? Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And my invitation to you is this. God is inviting you into a relationship with himself. Out of his grace, he's extended his love and manifested his love to us that we can see it because he gave his own son for us that we might have life in him. Have you trusted him by faith? I want to pray with you, and then I want to introduce to you, as soon as I'm done, I want to introduce to you some folks that are choosing today to make a commitment and join together with our church family, and we have some things left to celebrate here. But I ask you to bow your head with me. You know, just the same as Elijah did not know the heart of every person in Israel, there's no way he could know that. Well, neither do I. I don't know who in this room today is a Christ follower and who is far from the Lord. I have no idea. But I know this much, God knows. He knows your thoughts afar off. He knows your heart, your mind. He knows everything about you. And even with that knowledge, He still, He loves you infinitely. He loves you enough that He was willing to give His best that you may have life in Him. He gave His Son for you, that you might have life in Jesus Christ. God's invitation is, do you believe my son? Do you believe he died for you and rose again? And if so, you're welcome in my family. If you love my son, welcome home. 
And God says, and I will be your God. God moves in. He literally lives inside of the heart of the believer in the spirit of the living God so that you're always then in the presence of God, empowered by God, receiving the grace of God. You're his child and affirmed of the relationship in the Lord. So how does this begin? The scripture makes it plain. When we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, so you have to ask, is Jesus the Lord or is there another? Is there another God that you bow your knee to? So today, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, we're, we're saved, saved from the sin that separates us from God. So do you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you? If so, just call upon the name of the Lord. That's what Scripture tells us to do. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So right there where you're sitting, you call upon the name of the Lord and say, Lord, I know that you are God. And I know I need a Savior because I can't save myself. And I'm asking you, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for me and you rose again. And I'm asking you today to, to save me. Today I surrender my will to the will of God. Today, I want to become a Christ follower. I believe God hears the prayer of anyone who calls upon His name because Scripture says so. That's what is true. For the Christ followers in this room, and I know there are many, we've been challenged in Scripture today to think, to think biblically. Are there things that today we need to set aside? to bring it back into an obedience of Christ. Father, we pray right now that you would train us in our thinking today to think according to your word. Where there's vain imaginations, Lord, we'd those would be cast down. Lord, where we live in the world of hypotheticals and what-ifs, or all the if-onlys, that, Lord, we would deal in the present reality. And in the present reality, Lord, that we would, we would see you, we would understand your grace, and we could walk then in the confidence that you've given to us as sons and daughters of God. And that, Lord, we would trust you, that our hearts would cry out to you, our, our soul would be settled in you, Lord, our, our minds would be kept captive in the obedience of Jesus. Lord, help us today that we would walk in a way that would please you and loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.